Hey guys, so we are excited to have Steve Larson teaching us today. Again, we got our main guy, Kevin, who's on sabbatical. If you're your first time here, we are in the middle of a three-month sabbatical from our no normal uh, teaching. Um, Kevin and his family are away, and it's good. We've been, it's good for them, and it's not a bad thing. Again, we're sending them away because it's a healthy thing to have sabbaticals in churches, just to refresh and so we're excited to have Steve here. Steve, why don't you come on up? Steve, if you don't know Steve, Steve Larson uh, is the uncle of Kevin, who usually is up here. He's also the father to Matt up in Thousand Oaks, and he's the sister to, or he's the brother to the sister of Kevin's mom, so there's the, the uncle connection there. You're not a sister to... No, the brother to Kevin's mom. There you go. Yeah. You got it right. All right. So we're excited to have him here. Carry away. All right. Well, as always, I'm excited to be. Am I on, by the way? Okay. I'm always excited to be here, and especially today, the, the passage we're working on today fits in a couple of ways. Number one, it fits with Independence Day, because we're going to be talking about what does it mean that we have freedom in Christ? What does it mean to experience Christian liberty? So we're going to be talking about that. But we're also going to be talking about growing up as Christians. And I want to explain what I mean. In, in the spectrum of Christianity, people tend to wander to one of two extremes. Uh, the extreme that I grew up with might be called legalism. Uh, legalism is where you try to turn the Bible into a rule book. And you, you try to make rules of right and wrong for every little thing that you could encounter. Uh, for example, when I was growing up, we had the nasty five, you know, the big five. You know, Christians don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't go to movies. Oh, what's the fourth one? Oh, they don't dance. Yeah. And they don't, well, they don't play cards or they don't do drugs, you know. So, so the... The, the funny thing about all of this is the Jews were the same way. You know, the, the first five books of the Bible were called the Torah. And if you've ever read Leviticus, you go, oh, my goodness, this is so detailed. But it wasn't detailed enough for the Jews. So they actually wrote about a thousand more books based on the five books of the Torah to try to cover every little detail of life. And the goal of legalism is to eliminate any thinking or any discretion in your life. You don't have to think, you just have to find the proper rule, okay? So that's legalism. And, and that is basically an approach to life that will lock you into spiritual childhood. Because your relationship with God will be a series of do's and don'ts as you walk through life, and you, you have this sense that if you hit a don't, God is up in heaven, he's his cosmic killjoy, and he is just working to whack you every time you do something that is off of the do list. Okay, so that's legalism. The other is the, the people who are so focused on license or liberty that anything that the Bible says you can't do, they say, is okay to do. And that's where the Corinthians were. We're going to see 
how they struggled with it. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean that we as Christians have liberty? What is our freedom? And there's a couple of things that are really cool. Number one, we are free from the penalty of sin. All right. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Exactly. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, um, you and I have been forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. Do, do you realize the amazing thing? God not only knows everything you've done in your life so far, he knows every sin you're going to commit for the rest of your life, and he's already forgiven that. So if, if you tell a lie tomorrow, if you um, steal, or if you decide to go out and kill somebody tomorrow, if you're a true child of God, he already knew that you were going to commit that sin. He's already forgiven that. Now, this was kind of a funny thing because people started saying, wow, this is great. All my sins are forgiven. Therefore, I can sin all I want. And that's in, in Romans chapter 5, people actually were asking the question of Paul, hey, should we sin more so that God's grace will grow to cover our sin? Shall we sin more? The grace might increase. And now Paul takes us to the second issue of sin. Not only have we been set free from the, from the penalty of sin, but we've also been set free from the power of sin. Now listen to what Paul says. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in a death like his, we certainly will be united with him in his resurrection. Now, here's what Paul is saying. When you became a Christian, you actually identified with Christ in his death, and you identified with Christ in his resurrection. Now, he goes in and explains this. We know that our old, old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. So here's what Paul is teaching. When we are freed from the penalty of sin, we are not freed to sin. We are set free from sin. That makes sense? So now, the, the whole point is you are free from a domination of something that's going to lead you to death, and you are free to walk a whole new path, and that path is the freedom of a relationship with God and healthy relationships with other people. So, now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we, I know you already talked about this, but I want to read chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, All things are lawful, and what he means is all things are permissible, but not all things are permissible, or, or, or not all things are profitable. Now, I want to talk about this all things, because a lot of times we think, oh, that means the law is completely invalid. invalid. What Paul is not saying when he says all things are lawful is he doesn't mean, oh, it's okay for you now to commit immorality it's okay for you to kill people. It's okay for you to steal and lie and do all of these terrible things. No. He is speaking of the things where God hasn't specifically 
condemned them or encouraged us to do things. Now, I want to share with you a term. It's a, this will impress your friends and neighbors, so this is good for you to learn. It's adiaphora, okay? That is a, a term in Greek philosophy that deals with this huge gray area of life. In, in Greek, it was things that morality did not specifically condemn. For example, is it wrong to commit immorality? I think you will find general agreement on most people who have any sense of a moral compass that it's wrong to commit an immorality. It's wrong to steal from people. It's wrong to kill people. In, in the biblical term, this covers things that are not specifically forbidden by God's word or things that God word does, God's word does not specifically encourage us to do. This is about 90% of the decisions you'll have to make in life. See, God has, has said to a few things. Hey, whatever you do, it's always wrong to lie. Whatever you do, it's always wrong to steal from people. It's always wrong to commit immorality. It's always wrong to worship false gods. We, we don't even need to question those things because God has said, don't do that. Um, is it right to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Yeah. Is it right to love other people? Yeah, God has said, this is what I want you to do. So on the two extremes of life, there are things that God says, no, 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 never do that. And there are other things that God has said, hey, this is exactly what I want you to do. Between those two things, there's about a million things. Should I put my kid in a soccer league? Should I watch TV? Uh, should I uh, take drugs? Should I view pornography? He said, wait, 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 that's a black and white. That can't be a, uh, well, wait, where did God say thou shalt get on, not get on the computer and view porn? See, that's, that's not a, something that God has specifically forbidden. There's a lot of things that weren't even invented back then. Where does it say you shall not do drugs? See, those things are not forbidden. So we have to now... Think about those things. We need to apply principles in order to understand how God wants us to live today. And these are the things we're going to cover. And this is why this is so exciting. We're going to look at five principles that you can apply to anything in any culture and discover how God wants you to live. And what we're going to discover is that as you think about these things, you won't come up with black and white answers. Oh, for any Christian parent to put their kids in soccer is a sin, or they must do this. You're going to begin to realize, oh, there's, there's kind of a, a, a spectrum there. For example, if I put my kids in soccer, that's a great thing if I am doing that as an opportunity to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus. If... I'm doing that as a way to reflect the glory of God to people who need to see the glory of God. But if I become one of these parents who are just screaming at the ref on the sidelines and, and just cursing everybody out who is against, or the kind of guy, did you, I don't know if you heard about the fight that broke out because there was a 13-year-old ump who was calling a baseball game and people didn't like the way he was calling. So this massive fight broke out where parents were actually beating up eight-year-old kids on the field. Now, 
Probably not a good idea for a Christian to be involved in that fight, unless they're trying to break it up, but then you become part of the fight too, so you can't win in those kind of situations. So, we're going to look at these things, and we're going to find out what it means to live in freedom, and yet at the same time live in a way that God wants you to live. I want to share a couple of scriptures with you that talk about the liberty and how passionate Paul is that we actually live in freedom and not lapse into legalism. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, the yoke of slavery Paul is talking about was the law and all of the things that the Jews added onto the law. It was this huge burden that you had to bear. And Paul says, your freedom in Christ is so important, you need to fight to maintain it. So don't let anybody start trying to give you a list of things that are not in Scripture that, are, that you need to be doing for righteousness. You need to be deciding by yourself based on the principles of the Word of God and based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 13, he kind of gives a little bit of a, a limitation to this. He says, for you were called to freedom, Galatians 5.13, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity in the flesh. All right, let's look at this a little bit. All right, is it a sin to drink alcohol? No, you can't find that the scripture teaches that thou shalt not drink. Oh, this is great. I'm going to go buy a case of whiskey. All right, I, I read books and in these novels, Everybody drinks whiskey all the time. Oh, it's uh, all of these spy novels, you know, they, they, they love their whiskey. Maybe we should talk about if, is it a sin to read spy novels? Maybe that's where we're... But it kind of makes me think, wow, drinking whiskey is cool. I mean, all the guys who are saving the world drink whiskey, so maybe I should drink whiskey. So... I decide, okay, this 4th of July, I'm going to buy a case of whiskey, and I'm going to drink it all by myself. I'm free in Christ, right? Okay, now Paul says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So I drink whiskey, and let's see, over the next two years, I make it a habit of drinking whiskey on a day-by-day -day basis. What would you call somebody who for two years drinks whiskey on a day-by-day -day basis? An alcoholic. You see, at first, at first, I'm drinking whiskey because I want to. After a while, I'll be drinking whiskey because I have to. Does that make sense? And this is something about so many things in the world. You start participating in freedom, but pretty soon it leads you to slavery. Not slavery to the law, but slavery to your flesh. And this is the problem with, with things like pornography or imp and even impurity in movies, not out and out pornography, but I'm, you know, I know among Christians, I'm amazed how popular Game of Thrones is, for example. A lot of nudity going around there, a lot of stuff going on and you know, again, I can't judge for other people, but what I've learned, I can't watch that stuff. Because there are things that you can't unsee once you've seen them. So, 
if I keep watching images of sexuality and sensuality, at first I might be doing it because I want to. Pretty soon I'm doing it because I have to. Do you, do you understand what Paul is saying? Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh to take control of your life. And Paul goes on to say, instead, in love, serve one another. Use your freedom as an opportunity to express love to other people. All right. So now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians to see what exactly the principles are that we can use to govern our freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. Now, here are the first two questions that you ask in terms of these things that aren't specifically spoken of in Scripture. Number one, is it profitable? Is it going to help me in my walk with Jesus Christ? Or is it in some way going to build the kingdom of God? Now, let's take, should I put my kids in sports programs? The answer to that question is, it depends. It depends on, number one, why you were doing that and how you were doing that. Now, I'll give you one example. I had a guy, a friend of mine, he was a great Christian. And his son was an outstanding baseball player. And he was passionately committed to his son getting a scholarship and doing all of these kind of things. And one day we were talking, and he says, my son is just abandoning his faith. And I said, why do you think that is? He says, I don't know. And he was completely clueless. And I, I said, I want to challenge you to do one thing. I want you to go to your son, and let's say his name is Billy or whatever his name is. And say, Billy, what do you think I think is the most important thing for your life? He says, I'll do that. So he went and asked his son. And his son said, that's easy. You want me to be a great baseball player. This son didn't have a clue that his dad wanted him to walk with Jesus. You see, in, in pursuing this, they started out, it was fine. He got better, and all of a sudden, the, the father buys his son a batting gate, cage right in their backyard so they could practice, uh, hires coaches, does all of these things. Now, you see, we would never think of baseball as a bad thing to get your kids involved with. But guess what? If you keep going to where it becomes the most important thing in your life, now it becomes something that's drawing you away from Christ. I think it was Mark Driscoll who once said, if a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Does that make sense? In other words, even if you're doing something that is good and it becomes too important to your life, now that good thing, it becomes something that's actually drawing you away from Christ. So the question number one, is it helpful uh, applying it to sports? I think, you know, when, when my kids were growing up, we got involved with baseball and what was so fun is out of that experience, we had six families come to faith in Christ. Because we, the goal was, 
whatever they did, whatever level of, of participation they got involved with, we wanted to reflect Christ to those people. And I didn't run around with tracks as a coach and I said, oh, here's a, here's a gospel track for you. I didn't pass out tracks to people or I, I didn't say, before we start the game, I want to give you the gospel. I didn't do anything like that. I wasn't crazy, but I just tried to reflect the love of Christ, both to parents and to kids. And through that process, people just begin to notice a difference. And we use that as an opportunity. So for me, asking the question, is it helpful to become involved with baseball? For us, the answer was yes. It depends on how and why you're doing what you're doing. Now, the second question, all things are lawful. Does it have the potential or is it now dominating me? Now, let's take television. Is there a sin against watching television? You know, I've never read the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not watch television. Haven't seen it. So is it okay? Within reason, it's great. You can, you can relax. You can discover things. You can, all sorts of good things can come out of it. But let's say you're so passionate that, that you're binge-watching six hours a day. You know, the average American watches between four and eight hours of TV per day. Is that healthy? Is it dominating us? Maybe it is. So, so one of the interesting things I discovered, I was doing a little research, and, you know, the question is, what did people do with their time before television was invented? Do you know the number one thing that television replaced was hospitality? Before television, people used to invite their neighbors over, have dinner together, spend the evening together, and, and enjoy act, this crazy thing called face-to-face -face relationship. And that was the number one thing that television replaced. So again... Uh, this, this whole approach actually challenges you to be no, more diligent in your relationship with Christ than just going by a bunch of do's and don'ts. All right, so these are the first two questions. Is it helpful? Does it have the potential to dominate or master me? And what you're going to discover is the answer to that second question is that practically everything in the world has the 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 potential to dominate you. Let's take something as innocuous as golf. Can golf be a sin? Oh, no, it can never be a sin. Well, there was a time in my 30s when I, you know, I was getting pretty good at golf. In fact, I don't know if you know what a handicap is, but the lower the number on a handicap, the better your golfer you are, you know, and, and for a lot of golfers, this, this magic uh, aura of getting to a single-digit handicap is like, you know, the ultimate goal. Well, I was getting close. And all of a sudden, I'm practicing four days a week and playing golf a couple of times a week. And, and, the, and, I, I'm, and I'm bending or breaking golf clubs on the course. And I wasn't swearing because I'd learned thou shalt not swear. You know, that was one of the, you know, that has to be a Ten Commandment, I think. But, but I, was do, I was just angry playing golf. And I had to come to grips that this stupid game of chasing around a ball on a, a course was starting to dominate my life. 
See, anything, if it starts becoming too important to you, can have the potential to dominate. So this is where we need to be honest with God and honest with ourselves. Now let's go to the second scripture, which is the scripture for today, which is uh, 1 Corinthians. Oh, before we do that, let me just... One thing that happens is Christians, when their hearts start getting cold towards God, they start trying to excuse their behavior by saying, what's wrong with, and then they fill in the, the blank. And there's a whole different approach that God wants us to take. And that in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, the writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the picture is of a marathon. And the writer is saying, look, there are certain ways. And I wouldn't run a a marathon with ankle weights. In fact, I wouldn't run a marathon with sweats on or with, with a lot of extra baggy clothing. I'd want to strip down everything that's not necessary so that I could run. I don't know if any of you watch The Office. It, it definitely qualifies as the stupidest show on TV, but there's, there's something about, I think people like train wrecks and we like accidents that we know are going to happen every episode and there was this one time where uh the they were going to run a, a 5k and michael the moron who leads the office decided he was going to carbo load and so just before the race they have him just chowing down with i think it was what is it alfredo yeah fettuccine alfredo and so this cheesy stuff he's just jamming in his mouth and of course he starts running the 5k and he pukes all over the place because that's not how you run a race so here's the question for a marathon runner is it a sin for him to eat a chocolate sundae just before a marathon no it's not a sin is it smart no it's not so again if you if you picture your life as running this marathon race in a way that's going to glorify jesus christ the question is not what's wrong with something. The question is, how does it help me? How does it move me forward in running the race? All right? So second principle, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24. All things are, not, are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That's exactly the same as what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. So seven, same principles. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then in verse 24, in case we missed what he was saying, he's saying, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So now we're introduced to a whole new question in life. And the question is, does this build up other people around us? So now we're introduced to the concept, we live in a community. You aren't an individual Christian just wandering through life on your own, you're in a community of believers. So now, as you grow as a believer beyond the simple, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you actually want to mature in Christ, you start thinking, how are my actions and decisions going to influence other people around me? So again, is it wrong to drink? No, there's a lot of us who partake in wine or beer or alcohol in some way. And we, 
it doesn't dominate us. It doesn't master us. It's no problem with it. But now I invite my friend who has been an alcoholic for 20 years over for dinner. And I say, hey, would you like some wine? Now, I may not be violating principle number one. It's profitable. It's no, no problem for me. It's actually doesn't dominate me at all. But now I could be doing something that actually causes my brother to stumble in his faith. Now I'm actually sinning against one of the greatest laws of Jesus, which is the law of love. And that law says, don't seek your own good. Instead, live in a way that's going to build each other up. Now we're going to go on and we're in 25 through 30. And Paul here is going to apply this to this first century big question of should Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? That was kind of the equivalent to today of should Christians drink? I mean, it was, it was a huge emotional issue for people. So let's read verses 25 through 26. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All right. So here's the first principle. If you go to the meat market, chances are that meat has been sacrificed to idols. Now in the paragraph before, which you covered last week, Paul was saying, look, if you're in a temple and you're participating in a temple ceremony, you're actually connecting with demonic beings. So don't do that because we don't want to be shares with demons. Now Paul is talking something different. You're going to the meat market and you're looking around and here's ribeye and all, you know, all of these good cuts of meat. Chances are 80 to 90% of that meat has been sacrificed to idols. So here's what Paul's saying. It's not about the meat. The meat hasn't somehow been infused with demonic power. It was just a, a, uh, a neutral device used in, in that temple ceremony. It would be like if your kids come up after the service, ah, and they eat all the crackers up from communion. Have they taken communion? No. It's not about the bread. You know, when I was a youth pastor, we had communion with Rice Krispies and Coke. So it, it doesn't matter what you use. It's the, it's the actual spiritual thing that's going on at that point. So, you know, it was so funny when I was a young pastor. The big debate is, should we use unleavened bread or, you know, regular bread? And, of course, a lot of people, oh, no, only unleavened bread because that's what they used. That's what Jesus used. Well, it's not about the bread. Okay? And so Paul says it's not about the meat. So when you go to the meat market... Order your meat. Don't go around and say, oh, has this been sacrificed to idols? Has this been sacrificed to idols? Well, Paul says it doesn't matter. Because everything on the earth belongs to God. All right? So that's number one. Situation number two. You're invited over to dinner by an, an unbeliever. And he's grilling the steaks on the barbie. And you're wondering, oh, should I eat this meat? I wonder if it's been sacrificed to idols. He says, if, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, don't say, oh, Fred, has, did you, do you know if this meat has been sacrificed to idols? 
No, Paul says, don't do that. Just eat the meat. Be a good guest. Just enjoy the meat and don't ask any questions. And so it's kind of like Bill Clinton's, you know, in the, in the old days when he said, don't ask, don't tell. Well, when it comes to meat sacrificed to idols, it was don't ask, don't tell. Don't, don't even talk about it. Just eat it and enjoy it and enjoy the meal with your friend. All right? Now, third situation. But, you're just about to dig into this ribeye that's medium rare. It's perfect. And he says, oh, by the way, this meat has been sacrificed to idols. Oh, why'd you say that? You know, so Paul says at this point, don't eat it. Because it's obviously an issue to this person. And by eating it, you could be actually setting up a roadblock between this unbeliever and coming to Christ because you're doing something that he thinks is wrong. So he says, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So here's what Paul is saying. When we're dealing with other people, if we're living according to the law of love, we will limit our actions by the conscience of other people. Now, that's very un-American, isn't it? If so, in America, if somebody's offended with your actions, that's their problem, not mine. Paul says, no, if somebody's offended with your actions, you make it your issue because you love that person. So now he goes on to explain this, verse 21, 29. I do not mean your conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And then he has two questions that don't seem to make any sense. It says, for my, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And there Paul is actually kind of re reverse engineering this thing. The person who is trying to emphasize their liberty, they're the ones who would ask this question. Why should I care about somebody else's conscience? Or if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying if you're pushing your liberty to the point that somebody else is criticizing you for your participation in liberty, you're actually sinning against the law of love. All right? Now we're going to go to verse 30, and we're going to introduce, Paul brings all of this to a close. Actually, verse 31. And here's the next principle. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So verse 30 has our next principle. It's that everything you do, do it to the glory of God. Now what on earth does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to do something to the glory of God? That sounds so esoteric, and it's very simple. When you're doing something to the glory of God, you're doing something to make God look good in the eyes of other people. See, God's glory is the visible manifestation of his invisible attributes or characteristics. So if Jesus, it says, when he became flesh, it says, we beheld his glory. What does that mean? It's that when we would look at Jesus, we could actually see the characteristics of God. We could see that he was filled with kindness and truth. Or full of grace and truth. So, as I'm coaching baseball, 
Am I doing that to make God look good? Or am I simply doing that to win a game? When I'm playing golf, am I doing that to make God look good? Or am I doing it simply to enjoy the game of golf? Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything you do, do it to the glory of God. And I want to ask you a question. How would your life change if every morning you woke up and you went through your schedule that day and you specifically committed, today, Lord, I want to do this to make you look good. I want to, I want to, I want to have lunch with this friend to make you look good. In other words, putting God in a beautiful perspective became the passion of your life. So I've seen question number one, is it profitable? Question number two, does it dominate me? Question number three, does it build other people up? Question number four now, does it glorify God? And we give to question number five, verse 32. Paul says, give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. So he gives three categories of people. Jews, so he's talking about non-believing Jewish people. Greeks, Gentiles, that's everybody else who's not a believer. And the church, that talks about believers. So who shouldn't I offend? Jew, basically nobody. I shouldn't offend anyone. Now, this is kind of interesting in America because we, we get in arguments. I don't know if you see these Twitter storms that go on where where somebody says something and then somebody's outraged or offended and then all the other millions of people line up on one side or the other. Have you seen those developing, whether it was okay for them to say that or not? And here's what I'm suggesting. Paul says, whatever you do, learn to speak in a way that doesn't give offense to people. Well, I have the right to say that. Well, yeah, you do. But do you want to be a person who's offending people by the way you live? Now in verse 33, Paul concludes. He's, we're going to read 33 and then chapter 1 of verse 11. And before I read 32, let me just read Philippians 2, 3 through 5 to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have your mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You guys, almost all the time we have applied this to Christian-to-Christian relationships, but I want to throw a thought to you. In verses 6 through 8, when it's describing Jesus Christ, he was setting his interest aside for the sake of others. Was he setting his interest aside for the sake of the lost or people who already knew God? What do you think? The lost, exactly. He said, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to save the sinners. So Jesus actually was practicing these principles for the sake of people who were lost. So we should not be limiting this only to other believers. We should be limiting this to everyone that God's put in our lives that we actually put their interest ahead of our interest. And you say, man, if I, if I look out for everybody else, who's going to look out for me? What's the answer to that question? God's going to look out for you. Is God at looking, good at looking out for you? Hey, he's way better than you. And so the challenge of 1 Corinthians 10.32 
is for us to lay down our rights and trust God to take care of us. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded that one, that's Jesus, died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. Jesus died for everyone, so that those who live, that's us who have come to Christ, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died on and rose on our behalf. So, why did Jesus die for you? So you could have a great life and, and get lots of money and have lots of kids and have this wonderful family? No, he died so that you wouldn't live for yourself anymore, but you'd live for him. All right? Now let's go to the last part of the section. And before we do, I want to read Romans 15.3, because I want to see where Paul has gone. Romans 15.3 says, For even Christ did not please himself. Jesus didn't do anything because it's what he wanted to do. Now, look at 1 Corinthians 10.33. Paul says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own benefit or profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul says, I'm living to bless and to bring joy to other people. Why am I doing this? Because I'm following the example of Jesus who did not leave to please himself. So Romans 15, 3, Jesus didn't live to please himself. Paul says, I saw this in Jesus and I'm not going to live to please myself. I'm going to live to please other people. And then in 11.1, he summarizes this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what's the takeaway today? The real question is, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of Christian who's always demanding your rights, uh, always uh, trying to get your way, or do you want to be the kind of Christian who is following the example of Paul? The cost of being this kind of Christian, number one, it'll cost you time. And it will also cost you resources. And it will challenge you to grow in a centeredness or sensitivity to other people around you. You forfeit the right as a follower of Jesus to be self-centered. The benefit you'll make an eternal impact on people around you. Secondly, you'll be filled with the joy of Jesus because you'll be walking the way of Jesus. And thirdly, and the greatest thing for me is one day you'll stand before Jesus and you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So my encouragement to you is it's time to grow up. Uh, the worship team is going to come and we are going to end our time in a time of worship and thanksgiving, and prayer. And I just want to encourage you, you know, we have prayer teams up at the sides, and a lot of times you're thinking, oh, I don't want to come up for prayer, because everybody's going to be wondering, why is he coming up for prayer? What's wrong? Are they messed up? The, the simple truth is the Bible says, pray for one another. And our prayer times at the end of the service is an opportunity for you to enjoy 
having somebody pray for you. Even if you don't have any gigantic crisis going on in your life, you just, you just want to experience God's grace. And how do we experience God's grace? By the throne of grace, by praying. And so by going to people, even if you don't have a big issue in your life, you're, in, you're going to participate in the gaining of God's grace in your life. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of that prayer time. We have communion over here, which is participating in the basis of our salvation. We are saved because Jesus gave his body and his blood. And when you partake of that cracker and dip it in the cup, you are enjoying the very thing that brought salvation to your life. We also have the offering over here. Uh, it's a time where, is the offering baskets here? Oh, they're in the back, okay. So uh, the offering basket is just a time for you to respond in generosity to the generosity that God has given you. So let's enjoy this time together. There'll be a lot of movement. If you're new, don't be surprised if everybody walking around, that's what we do around here. Uh, and let's take this time to turn our focus to God. Father, I just pray that as we move into this time of worship, that you'd be honored and blessed by what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.